Rosaria Butterfield wrote an article. The title of that article back in 2013 was My Train Wreck Conversion. As a leftist lesbian pastor or professor, I despised Christians, she said. Then I somehow became one. She says, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than to deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing, that's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a shampoo commercial model. As a professor of English and women's studies on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion, fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, Darwin, and I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality, and I probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it weren't for how other cultural forces buttress the Christian right. She said, after my tenure book was published, I used my post to advance my understandable allegiances to a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS, activism, children health and children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue. We went to church to name a few things. She goes on to say, after she wrote an article about uh, the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers, she said the article generated many responses. So she kept a box on each side of her desk, one for hate mail, one for fan mail. One letter she received defied her filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. She said it was a kind and inquiring letter. Pastor Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it. I didn't know what box it belonged in, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk, where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. I'll pause Rosaria's story here, because what I love about it is this. She had her worldview, she had her lifestyle, she had her understanding of Christianity and Christians and those people, and she had a box for hate mail and a box for fan mail. Then she got a letter that didn't fit either one of those categories. Now, that alone, to me, is an inspiring moment. Our new series is called Find Your Voice, and we're talking about cultural issues. We've already covered pro-life, pro-choice. We've already covered God and government. And now, today, we're going to start two weeks on LGBTQ plus issues. I love this idea that somehow there's a way for Christians, for everyone in the world, to not send hate mail and perhaps to not send fan mail, but something in between, something that people don't know what to do with, something that is truthful and gracious and puzzling. How can we discuss this topic with grace and truth? How can we make sure that if we have a chance to have a discussion, people don't feel shut down or silenced, and they don't feel like they're getting hate mail or fan mail? It's something better. That's our goal. When it comes to this topic in particular, 
I want our church to be a place where we can discuss this topic lovingly, carefully, and biblically. I want people to feel safe bringing this topic up at church, asking questions. My goal today is to be pastoral. This issue can generate powerful emotions. Our country is so divided. The church is so divided. There's so much confusion and conflict, and souls get scarred, sometimes permanently, when people speak and act carelessly. So let's learn how to discuss this topic with grace and truth, and the basic bookends we will see today are grace. Maybe you're a grace person. Maybe you're a person who wants to share the love of Jesus with the world, and truth. Maybe you're a truth person, and you want the truth to get out. We're going to learn to share both the grace and the truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to find our voice when this topic comes up. Help us to speak carefully with consideration. Help us, O Lord, to recognize that the world needs to hear about the love of Christ and the world needs to hear about the truth of Christ. Show us how we can speak with consideration, especially on this topic. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, the first question that we're going to ask, you can jot this down, is how can we show the love of Christ when discussing homosexuality. This week we're going to focus on the LGB part, uh, and then next week we'll talk more about uh, transgenderism, questioning. Uh, and so how can we show the love of Christ when discussing homosexuality? Uh, there are people in this room who regularly interact with homosexual people and feel a strong desire to support these people and to protect them from being mistreated. There are others who go years without ever having an interaction with a homosexual person, and so this is more of a theoretical concept for them. There are some here today who know firsthand the feelings of same-sex attraction, and maybe you're wondering where these feelings came from, how God feels about them, how the church feels about them, and whether or not you will be accepted. There was a man who came to our step one years ago, which is our first step of getting to know our church, and he walked up to me and, and he whispered and he said, is it okay if I'm here? And I said, why are we whispering? And he said, because I'm gay. And I said, it's okay that you're here. Have a seat. But listen, that feeling where he had to come up to me and lower his voice. People are wondering that. How can we show the love of Christ when discussing homosexuality? Well, jot this down. The first thing we need to know is God loves the gay community. God loves the gay community. We're called upon by Scripture to treat everyone with the same loving kindness that God has showed us. Titus 3, 1 to 5, we'll put it up on the screen. Titus 3, 1 to 5 says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good, uh, every good work, and listen, to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. When it says there, we are to speak evil of no one. We are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What does that mean? Well, it means that our words matter very much. And when it comes to the gay community, the church has struggled to avoid speaking evil of people, to avoid being gentle and considerate, showing perfect courtesy 
toward all people. Why? Because we lose sight of the reality that regardless of what person, group, regardless of what pattern of behavior, we ourselves were once sinners. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. So there's no room for hatred. There's no room for violence. There's no room for ridicule when you're talking to anyone or about anyone, regardless of their past or present lifestyle. And the church is a place where anyone can come, anyone can listen, anyone can learn and receive a glad welcome. Receiving the same invitation to come and hear about the great news of the gospel. God loves the gay community, and the church must love the gay community. I want our church to become a community where people can be honest about their experiences, where they can ask questions about their deepest desires, where they can find people who will listen lovingly, where they can discover who God made them to be. I want the church to be a place where that can happen. Rosaria Butterfield received this letter from this pastor, didn't know what to do with it. She goes on to say this, the subheading is Friends with the Enemy. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. The Christians who mocked me on gay pride, they were happy. Uh, I and everyone I loved were going to hell. To them was clear as blue sky. This is not what Ken did. He did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this would be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if some, such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. They didn't even invite me to church. They didn't chase me off. I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. And then at a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine and said, this Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? My friend exhaled deeply. Rosaria, she said, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but I didn't. If you want, I'll pray for you. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover. An hour later, sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. She said, I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost. I did not like the math on the other side of the sign, of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian? Or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. She became a Christian. 
How did it happen? It happened because one person, one pastor, wrote her a gentle, loving, gracious letter that just questioned her assumptions. They started a conversation. It took years to figure out what each was saying, and she finally surrendered her life to Christ out of her own exploration of the truth. What a wonderful display of love on both sides. What a wonderful display of love that our world needs to see. We can sit, we can talk, we can enter each other's world without judgment or shame. We're not treating each other like blank slates that just need to sit and listen. There's no room for hatred or violence or ridicule in the church. John 3.16 is clear. For God so loved the world. The world, not just the righteous, not just his people, not just those who think they've got it all figured out. God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the gay community. Jot this down. Sadly, the world and the church have failed to love homosexual people well. Sadly, the world and the church have failed to love homosexual people well. One man who I'll bring up later, who's now a pastor and who lived in the gay lifestyle for many years, said, in the church I felt like the wild and weirdest of sinners. I felt like the wild and weirdest of sinners. How historically uh, has the gay community been treated? Well, a quick track through history would mean for hundreds of years, homosexual behavior was a crime. The 1600s to the 1960s, being homosexual meant you usually lived with a secret. And if it came out, it would destroy your life and your family. Homosexual behavior was a crime nationwide. Sodomy was illegal and had a long history of being illegal. Sodomy laws were even enacted in the founding colonies of the United States, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Rhode Island. The penalty was death as it was in England. Homosexuality was also viewed as a mental disorder or illness. In 1952, the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disturbance in the first issue of their official manual. States worked to threaten and punish this behavior using anything from jail time to the threat of forced sterilization. 1940s to the 1970s, a common treatment option uh, they weren't great, included electroshock therapy, a lobotomy, and castration. So a strong push for normalization happened between 1960 and 1980. In 1969, the Stonewall event happened, which marked the official beginning of the gay pride movement, the gay rights movement. Hundreds of people protested a police action in New York and gathered for days shouting gay slogans. In the 80s and the 90s, it generated awareness, compassion, and fear. The first case of AIDS were found in homosexual men in New York and L.A. AIDS was originally referred to as the gay cancer. Society was torn how to react. The country was divided in its compassions and convictions, but public awareness skyrocketed immediately. Many people were terrified of getting AIDS, and this created much more fear of the gay community. In the 1990s, Hollywood would become an ally and a powerful engine behind the movement. Some celebrities began coming out of the closet, like Ellen, also, her character on her show, Ellen, came out to 36 million viewers. Homosexuality was becoming more normal and interesting to mainstream culture. The 2000s led to the glamorization and the legalization of homosexuality. Prior to the year 2000, same-sex marriage was never legal anywhere in the world in all of history. Prior to the year 2000, same-sex marriage was never, never legal anywhere in all of human history. 
This is a new phenomenon. It was June 26th of 2015 that the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriages are legal across the country. So widespread endorsement and acceptance of homosexual behavior is very recent. All of this informs us that it has been quite a roller coaster ride for people with same-sex attraction to know where they stand with the world, where they stand with the church. And the world and the church have failed to love homosexual people well. I think it's important to recognize that the church failed to offer redemptive hope, listening ears, godly community, and validation of the struggle that many homosexual people find themselves in. Especially in truth churches, there was simply no grace. And I know that there are some people who are perhaps watching online or here today, and they feel like the church failed them. There was no one to talk to. There was no love. The things that were said about people like you cut to the soul. And I just want to say that I'm sorry if the church has failed you on this issue. If you did not receive the grace that the Bible called for you to receive, if you were treated like a worse sinner than anyone else, that was ungodly. And I apologize if the grace of Christ was never shared with you. And as a church, we have to have a heart. We have to show empathy. We have to be careful what we say to our children and our grandchildren because they're listening closely. And this will hit their friends or perhaps even them. Will they hear the love of Christ? Have they heard the love of Christ? in your home? Is the love of Christ in your heart, or is it simply crass condemnation? Law and condemnation. Jesus has to teach us how to love the gay community. For most of us, self-included, our upbringing included many different forms of hatred and discrimination and bullying toward the gay community. The things we said, the jokes we shared, the games we played, on my elementary school playground, we played a game called Smear the Queer over and over and over again and thought nothing of it. It was just built into life. God has had to teach me how to think and speak much differently about the gay community. Has he transformed you? Has he filled your heart with the love of Christ? Well, number one, we, how can we show the love of Christ when discussing homosexuality? God loves the gay community. And the world and the church have failed to love homosexual people well. Number two, let's talk about the truth. How can we share the truth of Christ when discussing homosexuality? You can write that down. How can we share the truth of Christ when discussing homosexuality? There are many who worry that expressing their true convictions about homosexuality could cost them a friendship, a family member, a job. Maybe it already has. We're living in the cancel culture in times of social hysteria. And so we are tempted and pressured and told to be silent if we disagree with the mainstream now or to shout louder to be heard. But we must courageously find ways to share the biblical truth on this issue. What is the biblical truth? Well, what do Christians believe? Well, jot this down. The Bible is clear that God's design for sex and intimacy is one man, one woman married for life. This is obviously, absolutely not what the world believes, but this is the biblical teaching. In Romans 1, 24 to 28, we find, we'll put these on the screen, but in Romans 1, 24 to 28, we find uh, the clear biblical teaching about this issue. And it says, 
starting in verse 24, uh, therefore God gave them up. This is humanity. This is man. This is us. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, We're all caught up in this falling away from God. We were born into sin. It was on our hard drive. We loved sin. It was, uh, it was software, right? It came into our hearts, and therefore we f- fell away. And it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Then it says, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, what does this mean when it comes to biblical teaching on uh, these passions? Well, the Bible describes homosexual behavior as uh, dishonorable passion. So the passion, the desire, the attraction is called dishonorable. It's also called an unnatural relationship, meaning it was not as God originally intended. The action uh, is called shameless and the mindset is called a debased mind. So the passion, the relationship, the acts, and the thoughts are all described through Scripture as being shameful and against God's will. It's important to recognize that the Bible doesn't narrowly condemn some forms of homosexuality. It broadly condemns all forms of homosexual behavior. Now, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? If that is the clear biblical teaching, well, some people... Uh, attempt to ask the question, is it possible that the Bible has been interpreted wrong? Is it possible that these verses take on new meaning for this day and age? In other words, is it possible that I could be a gay Christian? Some who try to live out this lifestyle thinking that it is in line with biblical teaching. In other words, they know the Bible and they think that their life in the gay community can align with God's will. After all, isn't this who God made me to be? Maybe you're wondering this. Maybe you have experienced same-sex attraction or you're you're curious about that and you're not alone. There are many who have asked this question inside the church. There are many who have carried this burden silently. Joe Dallas is a man who has quite a story. We'll put a picture up here of his book. Uh, Joe Dallas, uh, actually this is, uh, go to the other one. Joe Dallas wrote a book called The Gay Gospel, How Pro-Gay Advocates Misread the Bible. How did he come to the point where as a gay man he wrote a book called The Gay Gospel? Well, he was convinced that he was meant to live this lifestyle, and so he went out after many years as a Bible professor and said, this is who I am, and I think that in the Bible I can find, he said, within 60 minutes of this time, he determined that he could live out his lifestyle as a gay Christian. And he started attending this man's church, Troy Perry. Troy Perry is a gay man who uh, became a pastor of a gay church, and he said, I said, Lord, if you want to see a church started, a church that has a special outreach for the gay and lesbian community, but its doors open to everybody, you just let me know. And so he launched this church, and, um, and so Joe Dallas started attending that church, and at first he was like, I can take communion as a gay man, and I can sing worship as a gay man, and, I can, and then the Bible just started to call out to him and some of the things he heard, some of the teachings he heard, he knew they were wrong. He was a Bible teacher who knew all of that. And so he met with the pastor and started saying, shouldn't we apply this text differently? And and how do we interpret this? And it became crystal clear that there was just no desire in this church to actually teach the Bible in the way that it was intended to be taught. 
He struggled with that. But for years, for six years, he was in this church. He was ministering to people and counseling them and helping them to become gay Christians. And then one day he was watching television and he saw an old friend of his, a pastor friend on TV, sharing how his life had collapsed because uh, this person had hidden an alcoholism habit. And, uh, and so Joe Dallas was watching as his friend confessed this sin that he had kept hidden for so long. And he felt bad for him that he had lost so much. And then his friend looked straight at the television to everyone who was viewing and said, if there's anyone who has a sin that they have been keeping secret for long, he said, bring it into the light. Bring it into the light before your life becomes a nightmare. And at that moment, Joe Dallas was struck to the heart. He turned the TV off and sat still for a very long time. A life that is a nightmare, a nightmare of a life. And he said to himself, my life has become a nightmare. And he was crushed and he had one last uprising in his flesh. Can this be God's will? Can this be the way that I live? And he finally said, I have taken my soul outside of the authority of God, God's word and my life has become a nightmare. And so right then and there, he repented and he brought his soul back under the authority of God's word. And he began to ask himself, what does it mean for me to honor God according to his word? He wrote the book that lays out the biblical case today for what it means to have feelings of same-sex attraction and to glorify God with that without going outside of God's word. God's design for sex and intimacy is one man, one woman, married for life. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. And today in the church, many have offered people who can't make sense of these feelings, they've offered them a different gospel. They've offered them a different Bible. They've changed things for them. And I want you to know that they had no authority to do that. And maybe you were raised in a church where they never told you the teachings about homosexuality. No one said this to you. No one told you. You always assumed that it was just right and in line with God's will, and no one warned you what the Bible said. Or maybe you were raised in a church where they did tell you, and you just didn't want to hear it. Well, sometimes people, even in the church, try and make others feel better, better than the Bible makes them feel about lifestyles that are out of line with Scripture. And I'm sorry if that happened to you. I'm sorry if somebody in the name of Christ handed you a different gospel. They had no right to do that. I'm sorry if somebody in the name of Christ revised the Bible. They had no right to do that. I'm sorry if somebody handed you a truth other than the truth that came down from heaven and that confused you. That should have never happened. How can we share the truth of Christ when discussing homosexuality? Well, jot this down. God's Word shares the same hope to gay and straight people. God's Word shares the same hope to gay and to straight people. Anyone can find new life surrender to Christ. And every area must be surrendered to Christ, including our identity and our sexuality. The promises and warnings found in the Bible apply to everyone equally. And the great news is that God extends the promise of eternal life to everyone regardless of their lifestyle. This is the truth of God. Many people in the gay community have said that they prayed that God would take these desires away. They were unwanted. They asked God to fix them or cure them or heal them, whatever they said. 
And then they arrived at the conclusion that God didn't, that he wouldn't, and they didn't know what to do. They feared change was impossible. Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, we find an interesting passage about this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, the church in Corinth was, was rowdy. Uh, in many ways, it was sinful, like every other city, like every other church. But in Corinth, there was an abundance of depravity. They call Corinth the Vegas of the ancient world. And it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now that's a pretty all-inclusive message. Greedy, swindlers, thieves, idolaters. Like, we're all in there, drunkards. And such were some of you. Every form of sexual sin is included in this passage. Everyone who has fallen short of the divine standard is included. Then it says this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What does change truly look like? These are extra notes, you can jot these down. We must be washed. We must be washed. It describes our sins being washed off or washed away. And it happens only at the cross of Jesus Christ. Sin stains like nothing else. And the guilt you feel from your past, especially from your past sexual sins, will haunt you and cripple you. And God wants to wash it all away. Jesus died on the cross to take away the penalty for all of our sexual sins. Jesus died on the cross to cover the shame from all of our immorality. We must be washed. Jot this down. We must be sanctified. Sanctified means to be ceremonially cleansed and set apart for God. In other words, you're prepared to be placed in God's awesome presence. Priests were sanctified or consecrated or washed in the Old Testament before they would go into the presence of God in the temple and represent the people. This idea of being sanctified or consecrated means you are removed from sin and worldly passion and pleasure. You're taken away from that so that you are fit to dwell in the holy, awesome presence of God and to serve Him. We must be sanctified. We must be broken away from our attachment and marriage to the world, and then we must be brought into the holy presence of Christ, authorized to serve Him. When we're saved by Christ through faith, there's an instant decisive break from our love affair with the world. Maybe you feel like you're inherently bad. Maybe you feel like you're inherently broken. Maybe you feel like you can't get out of a downward spiral. You're, you're right. You're right. But Christ can come along. He can save you by faith. And then he can sanctify you. He can take you out of darkness and place you into light. We must be sanctified. Jot this down. We must be justified. Declared righteous in God's court of law. Fully forgiven of all depravity. We must be justified. There is a law, a moral law, handed down from heaven. We are under it whether we agree with it or not because God's law is absolute. It springs forth from his holy nature. Therefore, there will be a judgment, and Christ is the judge. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God to give a defense for our life. Every category will come up, our words, our thoughts, our actions, and indeed our sexuality and our choices in that area. 
Therefore, when we stand, we will be condemned in God's presence because we have failed to meet his holy standards. But it says that we can be justified, which means to be made legally right in God's sight through faith. We can stand without fear in the day of judgment, no matter what we've done in life, because Christ took away all of our sins at the cross. The beautiful thought is that Jesus doesn't just take our sins away and give us an even ledger with God. He gives us the perfect righteousness of Christ. So it's as if in God's sight that we've never sinned and that we've always been perfectly righteous. That's what it means to be justified. Have you been washed? Have you been sanctified? Have you been justified by faith in Christ? Christopher Yuan was not raised in a Christian home, and his family had high expectations for him. His father had two doctorates, and Christopher was on his way to becoming a dentist. His mom was proud of him. His dad was proud of him. He knew that he had struggled with same-sex attraction and wrestled with it his whole life, and he finally gave in to that. In his case, it wasn't just a turning toward the gay lifestyle. He decided to cast off all moral restraints. He moved away from home, and he threw himself into a very immoral lifestyle in every way. He became a drug dealer. He brokered drug dealers across 12-plus states. He, he sold a lot of drugs. And he threw himself into every different form of immorality. And his parents were crushed. They didn't know what to do. They were shocked and hopeless and saw their son destroying his life. And this drove them to surrender their lives to Christ. And his mom began attending a Bible study. And she said, will you pray for me with my son? Will you pray for my son with me? And Christopher's mother devoted herself to fasting for her son every week. She began with a Jews fast. And she said, I'm going to fast as long as I can. And it went on for over 30 days. She fasted for her son. She said, God, do whatever it takes to break the power of all sin in my son's life. And year after year went by, and things just seemed to be getting worse. And then the day came when Christopher woke up, walked out of his room, and the cops broke into the door. He had a fresh order of drugs sitting right out on the counter. He had, he had what was the equivalent of many tons of marijuana. They measure it that way. And there was nothing he could say. They took him into custody, threw him in jail, and he was beginning to hit rock bottom. But he didn't hit rock bottom until he went in for his health exam and they said, we've done all of your blood work and we need to tell you that you've tested positive for HIV. And then he was crushed. Then he hit rock bottom. He went back to his bunk, didn't know what to do, and he looked up and on the top of the bunk in his prison cell was written Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. When he had gone down this road, his father tried to give him his Bible and he threw it away. And as he was walking around the prison that day, he saw a Bible at the top of the trash can. And he took it and he brought it back to his cell and he began to read it. He began to read it all and he began to understand God's love for him. He felt like he had lost everyone and everything. His friends would no longer talk to him because he had clearly been caught. They were afraid he was going to rat them out. His family was not sure how to talk to him. He felt like a complete castaway from society. And he heard about God's great love for him. 
that all of his sins could be forgiven, that he could be welcomed as a child of God into the kingdom of faith. He was humbled, and he finally surrendered his life to Christ. It was amazing how God got him out of prison, and Christopher was so in love with the Bible that he started studying it at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. He got his master's degree, then he got his doctorate, and he is now a Bible professor. And the best part about it is he and his mom wrote a book together about each of their sides that led to his conversion. Here's a picture of it. Uh, it's called Out of a Far Country, Christopher and Angela Yuan. A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. How can we share the truth of Christ when discussing homosexuality? God's Word shares the same hope to gay and to straight people. And we've heard throughout this sermon people who have lovingly, prayerfully reached out with this life-changing message. They shared the love and they shared the truth. And God changed lives. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're at. But we are all sinners saved by grace. Beckon to bring our fallen hearts to the one who loves us. The one who will accept us. Have you surrendered your identity to your creator? Have you said, you tell me who I am? And have you boldly decided that if you have the chance to discuss these matters with other people, that you will be gracious and that you will be truthful? Let's pray and invite God to help us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word speaks to these matters. Lord, what a challenge that we are called to share the full grace, the full love of heaven, Lord, with every different form of person who is pursuing a lifestyle that is not in line with the Bible. And Lord, remind us that each one of us was far, far, far from you, and you needed to find people to reach out in love to us. So regardless of where we're at in life, I just pray that you would help us to be humble, to recognize that we are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. And Lord, I just know that there are some here this morning who know that it's, it's time to repent of just the horrible things they've said, the terrible heart they've had toward people in the gay community. It's time for the jokes to stop. It's time for the words to be purified. Lord, I just pray that you would transform hearts in this room today. And there are some, Lord, who have not shared the truth they are afraid to share the truth on this matter, or even worse, they maybe have shared a different truth than the Bible has authorized them to say. Lord, I just pray that they would repent, that they would lose their fear, their cowardice, for the word of God that was handed down from heaven to us. Lord, I know that you call us to not be ashamed of you or your word. And I pray that in this era, we would be bold in our belief that God's word is what's true and what's best for ourselves and for our world. And I think of those, Lord, who are watching online or here today who would say, this is me, I, I, this is me, you're talking about me. Maybe they've had feelings of same-sex attraction for a long time or they've just been confused recently and they don't know how God feels about them. They don't know how the church feels about them. And I just pray, Lord, that they would hear my heart, that they would hear your heart, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We must bring every area of our lives under the rulership of Christ the King. And I just pray, Lord, if they, if they have never surrendered fully and completely to you, especially their identity, I pray that today would be the day that they say, God, you tell me 
who I am. I'm not telling you anymore. I surrender my identity, my desires, and my deeds, all of them, to the one who stepped down from heaven to die a brutal death, who was risen and now ruling. I trust you to take perfect care of me. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.